Welcome to this edition of Rail Group on Air, the podcast series brought to you by Railway Age, Railway Track and Structures, and International Railway Journal. This is William C. Vantuono, Editor-in-Chief of Railway Age. This is the first in a new series, Where Are They Now? We will be interviewing the uh, previous railroaders of the year. I'm very pleased to welcome my first guest, and that is our 2011 Railroader of the Year, Wick Mormon, who uh, has been in the industry for a long time, started out on the Southern Railway as a track worker and uh, worked his way up to um, president and CEO of uh, Norfolk Southern, retired from there, and then uh, as sort of a public service to the industry, uh, ran Amtrak for a year. And, uh, and Wick is doing some, uh, some interesting things now. Uh, he's uh, probably busier than ever. You know, uh, I wouldn't say I'm busier than ever, Bill, but I stay busy, which is good. And sometimes I've said, you know, I always wake up and I have five things I'd like to c- get accomplished in a day. But if I get a couple of them done, I still go to bed happy. The, the thing I'll say is that I'm very blessed. Our family is very blessed. And I really don't do anything I don't want to do. And that's a great position to be in. But yes, I, I'm busy. So you've got a couple of uh, really interesting projects you're working on that have to do with historic preservation, East Broadtop, and also uh, the re-restoration of an iconic uh, steam locomotive, the Pennsylvania Railroad 1361, the K4. Tell us about that. Well, uh as you know, and as a, a lot of people who know me, um, I was one of the proverbial kids who loved trains and then had an, a wonderful career in the railroad industry, but have retained that uh, interest and enthusiasm in the industry as a whole, but also in uh, the history of the of the railroad and the technology that's been employed. So as a result of that, some years ago, um, as you may recall, we, we had a what I thought was an effective from a PR and a uh, uh, employee standpoint, uh, a limited steam program at Norfolk Southern. And I became aware of, I guess I'd known about it in some way for a long time, the fact that in Altoona, which has been such an important point in the history of the railroad business and in Norfolk Southern and a place I used to go on a regular basis, there was a, a terrific little museum and uh, this iconic Pennsylvania Railroad steam locomotive that was had a checkered history and was lying around in essentially in pieces. And I found out some more about it in the later uh, my later years as CEO, including the fact that there was a small, very dedicated group of volunteers that were working on it. Um, it was kind of this remarkable thing. I went back into the back building of the museum and there was the, the frame of the locomotive sitting there with, and it was kind of like walking in and the back building of a museum and finding a T-Rex skeleton or something. And so I, as I became more and more aware of it and interested in it, and then when I retired, a, a friend of mine whom I've known for a good many years now, uh, named Bennett Levin, who's Philadelphia and had a mm-hmm. distinguished career as an engineer yes. and working for the city, and also is an enthusiast and, and knew far more about Altoona and the K4 than I did, 
we started talking and we kind of came up with a plan to try to put this thing back together. Then Bennett convinced me that I needed to go on the museum board with him to get that started. And then we went on the museum board and then we found out there were all these issues with the museum that needed to be straightened out, on and on and on. But, and this is the Railroaders, uh, Railroaders the Memorial Al- Museum Memorial in, in Altoona. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a, uh, I recommend everyone to go see if they get a chance. It's as much about the town and the people as it is the Pennsylvania Railroad. But anyway, so I've ended up as chairman of that board and we've made some very wholesale changes and straightened up their finances. And we've announced the restoration of the K-4. So the project's underway. Um, We'll be in the fundraising mode for a while to get it done, but we'll get it done. Uh, We have a very talented little firm called FMW doing all the engineering and the work. And it's, it's a great project. And it, like the East Broadtop, uh, is important, I think, from the standpoint of railroad history and enthusiasts like me. But it's also important because if you go to Altoona, right, there's not necessarily a, a whole lot to see and do in Altoona, Pennsylvania. And the museum, particularly with the K-4 restoration, uh, will draw a lot of visitors. So it's good for the town. Uh, and good for economic development in Altoona. Uh, the same is even truer for the East Broadtop. And that's a convoluted story as well. To some extent, this is a was originally a 31 mile three foot gauge short line that connected with the old Pensy, now NS main line at Mount Union, Pennsylvania. And Mount Union mm-hmm. and Huntington County are... Uh, Uh, are are depressed areas. Let me just say this. There's not a lot of economic activity. Uh, I always like to say, you know, it's, it's not, it's not in the middle of nowhere. Nowhere is a couple of mountain ranges away. Uh, But at the same time, it's within a two and a half hour drive of seven or 8 million people. So once the K4 project had started, I'd always heard of the East Broadtop because they ran very limited steam excursions for years after the company officially shut down in 1956. And I started talking to Bennett and then Henry Posner, whom you know, was mm-hmm. also very knowledgeable about it. He's in, in Pittsburgh. And in October of 2019, uh, I went to... Um, this tiny community, uh, joint communities of Orbisonia and Rock Hill Furnace, Virginia, which is where the East Broadtop was headquartered. And we met a fellow named Brad Esposito there and Brad had been with uh, GNW and um, he and a, a small group of people have been talking to the owner of the East Broadtop, a guy named Joe Kowalczyk, whose father and mother bought it back in the 50s. And Joe is a scrap dealer. And so the concern was always, well, Joe's going to scrap it. But that's, he views it, viewed it then, views it now as his family legacy. And I must tell you, we went to Orbisonia. It was kind of cold and gray. And I was absolutely just totally taken aback by what I saw because it's kind of this big open area. There's an old yard with a bunch of hopper cars parked there. This was a little coal hauling railroad originally. And there's a roundhouse 
and you walk in the roundhouse and there's 16 locomotives sitting in there. It's almost like it was closed up yesterday. And then even more remarkably, you go into these shop buildings, old wooden shop buildings, um, and that date more than, they're over a hundred years old. And here's all of the metalworking and woodworking machinery from building cars, maintaining locomotives, all of this machinery driven by belts, leather belts that come down from rotating rods in the ceiling, driven by a one cylinder steam engine. And it's just, I walked in and I thought, how could this still be here? How has this been preserved? The answer was that Joe had, had kept it and run a few excursions. And then there's a wonderful organization called uh, the Friends of the East Broadtop, a volunteer organization. I recommend that anyone who's listening to this go to their website. Uh, and they've been around for 30 years. Uh, their numbers have now swollen. They raise money, they send work parties out, and they kind of kept it not in great shape, but kept it intact. So with all this in place, uh, Henry and Bennett and I decided that we'd try to resuscitate the railroad. And we um, did a deal to purchase it. Volchek gave us a bunch of owner financing, which is fine. Uh, we'd gone out and uh, raised some private money. We need to raise more. We've had a lot of state grants. Uh, we're thinking we're going to get some other government help because they view it as economic development. The county commissioners think this is absolutely great. And our plans are to restore the railroad. It's a remarkable venture in the sense that it's a remarkable property. But I also will say, if there's ever a project that's had good karma, this is one. Because things keep coming together for us to make it happen. We built a good board. So between uh, Altoona and East Broadtop, uh, from a railroad standpoint, I've got a lot going on and it's enormously satisfying and fun. They're really, really good people involved with this. And uh, it feels like uh, it'll be a great thing for not only railroad preservation and railroad history, but really helping some communities that need the help. So under your watch uh, uh, at Norfolk Southern, the, uh, the 611 was, uh, was brought back to life. Sooner than later, we'll see the 1361. Do you think uh, you think Norfolk Southern will uh, will let this uh, beautiful thing out onto the main? Uh, you know, I have no idea. Every CEO and chief operating officer have to make a decision about what they want to do with operations like this. Norfolk Southern has moved 611 up to Strasburg. Obviously, this is the I guess second visit it had up there. I don't know. We there will be plenty of places to operate mm. it because Pennsylvania, as you know, has the largest number of short lines, a great many of them of Pensy origin of any state in the country. And it has, uh, talking about the nexus of railroad locations, not only is there Strasburg, there's the East Broad Top, there's uh, the museum at Altoona, there's also a little short line down south of Altoona called the Everett Railroad, which runs a steam engine. Uh, as well as being, you know, a for-profit short line. Uh, it actually goes out of Hollidaysburg, where the old PRR car shops were. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. So I do think, and our plan is to kind of build a real area of interest for people, not only in this country, but for people all over, to come visit and see a lot of railroad preservation. 
Well, I have to say, uh, Wick, if, uh, you know, if, if, if anybody can uh, get this done, it will be you and Bennett Levin and, and Henry Posner. Quite a, uh, a force there, a force to be reckoned with, I think, and dedicated and well, passionate. I appreciate that. We're an unlikely uh, set of three amigos, I guess, to, uh, <laughs> to do this. I'd like to get your uh, observations on the uh, current state of affairs in the, uh, in the rail industry. You know, there's a lot going on. Uh, Let's talk about Amtrak first. Now, you uh, you went from Norfolk Southern to Amtrak. It's something that you wanted to do. Uh, you uh, you ran Amtrak for uh, for about a year, and then and then you brought in uh, uh, your your successor. Your, hold on. Uh, then you you brought in a, a successor, and um, things seem to be looking up in terms of uh, in terms of funding. Uh, we have a uh, we have a supportive administration uh, for Amtrak, and there's some pretty grand plans to expand services, but uh, and do a lot of other things. There's new equipment on order. Uh, what's your take? I enjoyed it immensely, and there was lots to be done in every direction you turned. There were some good people. There were some people who really needed to move on, but there were a lot of good people. Uh, I think almost all of them are there today and uh, who wanted to do good things. And my mantra throughout the time I was there was, look, you know, we, we have a different business model than a lot of other companies that rely on uh, government funding, be they defense contractors or road builders or whatever, in that we have to have some amount of appropriations every year, primarily to cover what are large capital expenses. But that doesn't mean we can't run like an effective corporation. The industry today and what you see is, you know, where is it headed? What are some of the, the problems or the challenges? Uh, you know, your, your observations from, you know, I guess not, not only from your perspective as a former class one chief executive, but, uh, you know, as, as somebody who's been in the industry a long time and now you can kind of step back and, and take a look at things. Well, uh, let me say, right, that uh, I'm retired. I'm old. I'm clearly a fuddy-duddy who is out of touch with the world as it exists today. And so I'm, what I'm trying to do is give license to everybody who listens to this and thinks he's old, he doesn't understand, a, perfect, a license to say, yeah, I was right. He even admits it himself. Look, but I, you know, I think the state of the industry today is something that causes not just me, uh, but a number of people, a lot of concern. Since the rapid onslaught of PSR in the last five years, I guess, uh, and I always try to remind people that PSR is neither precise nor scheduled particularly well. You know, the, the industry has gone in a direction that I think ultimately is the wrong direction. And I will say right up front that there are aspects, particularly around operations, uh, PSR, that make sense. Hunter Harrison, for whom I had a great deal of respect and I liked him and I knew Hunter fairly well, uh, was an operating savant, no doubt about yes. it. Mm -hmm. And there are things that he saw in the railroad industry that he thought could and should be improved in terms of operations. And uh, he, he was right about them. Having said that, you know, we have an industry today 
when you look around that has a model of running great big trains, assembling as many cars as you can, and then put them out in a train, which is a very old fashioned way of railroading. And if they have routes where uh, they don't have the siding capacity necessarily to meet those trains or there are other operating issues, that doesn't matter. And the result is that overall rail service has declined. And I'm not just saying that, there are lots and lots of customers saying that, and they're not just saying it in places I hear about it, they're saying it to the STB and they're saying it with very loud voices. So at the same time, and this is kind of a a little known fact, but it's pretty much true. When, When railroads get very full and service gets very bad, they're usually for whatever reasons, they're cheaper to operate. Your operating ratio doesn't go up. A lot of times it goes down. And in this quest for an operating ratio, a low operating ratio, the fact that service is deteriorated, but you're running a lot more, putting a lot more cars, moving a lot more tonnage on a lot fewer trains, upsetting customers and disregarding service levels for the long term. But at the same time, along with, you know, fairly draconian headcounts across all of the carriers, not just in the operating side, but across the entire suite of activities in these railroads, uh, they, the companies have driven the operating ratios down in 60 plus or minus, certainly in the low 60s. Uh, and that's obviously applauded by the shareholders who are driving this whole process. But at the same time, uh, they're not investing more capital. Other than some lengthening some sidings in places, they're not really spending money on the property in the way necessarily that they should. And so you have this pattern of behavior, which at some point or another, I'm afraid, catches up with the industry. And you're starting to see that with what's coming out of the STB. There are louder and louder voices in Washington saying, something's got to be done here. And the problem with that is that railroads really have, I mean, free enterprise is what made this company country great, right? But companies by and large have to have a social contract with the government on how they're allowed to operate. And the railroads have been allowed to operate in, in ways in which they had advantages in terms of pricing and in terms of markets. But the social contract, and this is my belief for many, many years, has always been that the idea that the railroads earn an adequate return on capital, and adequate means enough to pay a dividend and return some cash to shareholders in the form of buybacks when times are good, is acceptable so long as the railroads continue to be seen as trying to provide good customer service and investing in their properties. And you now have a place where the railroads are earning extraordinary returns with their current operating ratios. They're all buying stock back, lots of stock back. So they're doing great things for shareholders, but at the expense of their customers and investment in growth. Is that a long-term viable strategy? I don't know, but it concerns me that it's not. And we're going to see this play out fairly soon because we're going to see it play out at the STB in terms of what they're thinking about with access. And access means different things to different carriers, right? Access in terms of intermodal doesn't mean anything, right? Access in terms of merchandise can mean an enormous amount. And in terms of commodities can mean an enormous amount. But we're going to see it play out at the STB. I think it's a business model that's great for shareholders. And, you know, what has driven everyone in the industry to do this 
Hunter said, I'll go to CSX and be CEO. The stock went way up. The board had no alternative. He came in, started slashing and burning. And then the activists and the activists now coordinate with the big institutional shareholders started to pressure every other railroad. And the threat always has been, if you don't do this, we'll find another management team who will. I'll end up by saying this. Not only do I think it's not good for the industry, I don't think it's good for the customers. I don't think it's good for the country. You know, the conversations we used to have 10 years ago, whatever, look, you know, as freight transportation grows in this country, we need to be thinking about how to expand capacity to get more of this business. Because if we don't get more of this business, we're just going to dump more and more stuff on the highways and the highways can't take it. And that was a view that was held by a lot of people in Washington as well. I think it's a, a shareholder-driven, very short-term way of looking, about, looking at things. The fact of the matter is shareholders, including most big institutional shareholders, right? Their idea of long-term thinking is they'll be holding the stock next year. That, that's given, the end of my rant, Bill. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, you know, give, given the, uh, the fact that virtually all of the legislators who were around in 1980, when the, when the industry was partially deregulated under staggers, they're all gone. Uh, and no one really uh, and on, on, on the Hill doesn't really understand the, uh, the, the, um, the pain that, 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 the, that an overregulated industry had to deal with and finally had got relief in 1980. Uh, and, and given, you know, given the, the situation at the STB and, you know, and, and for the first time, at least to my knowledge, uh, you see a, an STB chairman who's very active, is out there speaking uh, on these subjects, which I think is kind of unusual. You think the industry might be going down that, that slippery slope of being re-regulated to some extent? I mean, a lot of people are, are, are really worried about that. That's what I'm saying. I think it's, I, I don't think it's inevitable. I think it's highly likely that some things are going to happen. And re-regulation is a very broad kind of term. Can the SDB impose conditions on the carriers around rates, around access that will be very negative? Sure. But, you know, if you're the chairman of the SDB, you weren't around at Staggers. And remember, when Staggers was passed, the industry, with noble exceptions, including the Southern and the NNW, uh, a lot of the industry was in terrible shape. You know, the, mm-hmm. you sure. had the Rock Island fiasco. Conrail was still recovering. Uh, there were all kinds of things going on. And, and an 80 operating ratio was considered to be G-OK, right? Now it's 60. Right? So if, if you're the chairman of the STB, and you even if you know that history, you might well look say, look, if your operating go- ratios go from 60 to 70 or the low 70s or even the mid 70s, that's a model that worked 15 or 20 years ago work fine. You paid dividends. When times were good, you, you paid back shareholders. You were all investing in your properties pretty much. What are, you, what are you saying? And I've got all these customers coming to me saying, these folks are letting us down. It is a concern and it should be a concern. I'm going to move on to my next rant and that's about Amtrak. Okay. Right? And okay. you know, passenger trains are a nuisance. They eat in the eyes of operating people. They get in the way, right? They soak up capacity. Uh, you know, you can look at all these things, but the fact of the matter is that Amtrak is there, passenger trains are there, 
They're the result of a deal that was made many, many years ago, which was very beneficial to the industry. And there are lots of people say, well, that, that was so long ago, that doesn't matter. But why go to the STB right now with Amtrak issues, which really are not particularly germane in my view, in terms of like service across the Gulf Coast and try to poke a finger in the eye of the STB and a very pro Amtrak administration. And in fact, a Congress that's not anti Amtrak anymore, even if, even if congressional control changes. It just seems to me it's like one more thing. Why wouldn't you be trying to be seen as helpful rather than obstructionist? That's the end of that rant, Bill. Well, you know, I, I, I felt that, uh, the, you know, the, the Amtrak standard argument, well, we have statutory access and this was, it's in the law. The law is 50 years old. You know, maybe the law, maybe the, that needs to be revisited. The law needs to change. There has to be, there's got to be a better solution because it's not the same industry as it was 50 years ago. Well, I think that's, I think if you want to take that argument, I think that's okay, right? I will say this, if you tried to change the law these days, the freight railroads would get very far. And in fact, they might might have more onerous Amtrak restrictions. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, right? If the law needs to be changed, that's one thing. That's what the legislatures and the administration do. But in the meantime, it's the law, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, I used yeah. to have a postcard I had in on my desk and, you know, it showed this guy in, you know, Renaissance dress and an apple falling on his head and all, mm -hmm. all these vectors going out in different directions and said, gravity, it's not just a good idea. It's the law. It's the law. Yeah. So work within the law. And I, I, I agree with your point that uh, you, within the law, uh, you can be less, uh, uh, you can be more cooperative or be, have a more, more spirit of cooperation. I would think, but that's got to come from both sides, of course, the freight and the passenger. In my experience at NS, long experience, you know, uh, running Amtrak on time, and it's harder because, you know, people are parking more and more long trains on the main line these days when the crews hit the run out of time. Whether or not a railroad runs Amtrak on reasonably well, it's hard to run it on time every day. There are just a lot of things that happen. It is basically, you know, the senior management has to tell everybody, run it on time and I'm and we're gonna watch it. And when that happens, it gets better. Got better at NS when I did that. Do you think the, um, the current focus uh, at Amtrak on developing more corridor type services with more service frequency, uh, because that's, that's where the ridership is, you, what, you, do you agree with that? Yeah. Of course, that's that's what makes that you know all these people who go to Europe and say, "Boy, they have great trains over there." Why don't we have trains like that? Well, if you look at them, that's the European model of rail passenger service, and of course, the distances are shorter in Europe, and they can do that. But mm -hmm. yeah, a, a great example of that is there is uh, the state of Virginia has been very progressive and continues to be very progressive about passenger rail service. Some years ago, worked out an arrangement with Norfolk Southern, which was good for both sides because Amtrak put a substantial amount of money and in infrastructure that we wanted and needed and started running a passenger train, which now comes out of Roanoke and goes to Washington, but started out of Lynchburg, but it comes through Charlottesville. And when I was at Amtrak, I'd commuted. I didn't commute every day, but I'd take the train up to Washington and then several days later, take the train back. And the ridership on that train is great. 
every time because no one in their right mind wants to get on Interstate 95 in or out of D.C., right? So there are lots of places where that model works. The, the key thing there is Amtrak has to be willing to come to the table and say, okay, let's do the modeling. Let's get the modeling done, which, and let's make it rational modeling. Let's see what the infrastructure requirements are. We're going we're gonna to participate in that. The long distance model, by and large, doesn't work. And where you see long distance trains highest ridership is in the corridors that look much more like what Amtrak is proposing. Closing thoughts? I've watched this industry for a long, long time. And uh, I think it's a great business. I think it's a business and a technology that inherently a lot of people, not rail fans, but a lot of people across this country kind of like. Railroad's good, railroad's bad. Most of them say, yeah, that's a good thing. You know, Sure, they block a lot of crossings in some places. And I think we have a lot of advantages and that if we take advantage of those advantages, if you will, uh, the industry's got a great future. And it concerns me when I see things that I think are going on that might seriously damage that future. I'm having a lot of fun. Retirement's a really good gig. I will tell you, it took me a day to get used to it. Well, Wick, uh, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Always a pleasure. And I'll leave all of your listeners with one other thing. The reason that both of us are going strong and look so well-preserved and so are so, you know, erudite and uh, knowledgeable is that we're both the son of medievalists, medieval that scholars. Correct. That is yeah. correct. So, uh, yes. Uh, apparently that's a pretty strong gene pool. Yes, my, my, my dad, uh, uh, William, Dr. William John Van Tuono, PhD, NYU, and, and your dad, um, Charles Mormon the third. third. He was the third. third. Dr. Charles yeah. W. Mormon the third. Yeah. Yes, and they were, they yeah. were contemporaries back in the, uh, in the 60s and, uh, and 70s. And I remember uh, my, my dad, when he was doing his dissertation and, um, and writing various books that he got published, uh, uh, talking about your dad's work, and many years later, you know, here, here you and I are, yeah, yeah. <laughs> conversing. It's a yeah. good thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a good thing for sure. Thanks so much, Wick. And uh, as I sign off on all of these, have a safe day. Mm-hmm.